Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, I want to thank everybody for joining me tonight here on Golf Talk Live. Uh, We're getting close to uh, wrapping up the season, just a little less than a month, and then we'll be taking a break uh, for the Christmas holidays. And uh, I'll be taking a little extended break, actually, uh, and I'll give you a little bit more information about that uh, a bit later in the show. Uh, But I want to thank all of you for joining me tonight here uh, as we uh, get ready to celebrate next week uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, So there will not be a show uh, next week, of course, so we can all observe that. Uh, I want to thank everybody that's uh, been uh, coming through the year thus far and and helping out here in the Coach's Corner panel and all the special guests. And as I say, we've got a few shows left uh, to finish out, and I'll give you the information a little bit later on in the show. But thank you for joining me tonight. Um, Before I introduce the panel... I just want to take this opportunity to thank uh, the sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel this season, GolfSwing.com. With their cutting-edge technology, GolfSwing.com have teamed up alongside uh, really some of the best uh, golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus, if you will, in the business. Uh, Together, they have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. Remember to enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at checkout to receive 50% off the subscription price. So join today, watch, practice, and improve your game. And a little bit later on, I'll play a clip uh, from GolfSwing.com as well. Um, All right, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be starting off here with Coach's Corner. And a little bit later on uh, in the show, I'm going to be joined by two special guests. uh, Returning to the show, John Decker, PJ instructor and instructor with GolfSwing.com and a motivational speaker, as well as Dr. Angelica Napolitano, a.k.a. the Golf Doc, and owner of Optimal Physical Therapy and Wellness down in Jupiter, Florida. They'll be joining me on the second half of the show as my special guest this evening. So let me introduce the panel. We'll get to right to tonight's discussion here in just a moment. First up, of course, is Peter Agazarian, uh, the owner and director of performance for Northeast uh, Performance Institute, as well as the owner and president of Northeast Golf Performance. Uh, He was the 2017 Northeast uh, New York PGA Player Development Award recipient. He's also a TrackMan Master and a proponent uh, group member. Also joining on the panel tonight is Clint Wright, a 30-year member of the PGA, partner at TGM Golf, and a big proponent of the R3 approach, and one of the best, in my opinion, is covering the short game today, and is always a favorite guest here on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, Also joining on the panel tonight is Chuck Evans, uh, Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher, uh, Golf Digest Top Teacher in America, and a Top 50 Growth of the Game teacher, as well as the Director of Instruction at Apache Creek Golf Club, in Apache Junction, Arizona, and owner, of course, of Chuck Evans Golf. Guys, welcome to Coach, Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for having us, Ted. Yep, go ahead here. Thanks, Ted. All right, appreciate it. All right, I'm going to start uh, um, <clears throat> sort of in this order here, and then we'll we'll kind of flip it around as I normally do. I'm going to start off 
with uh, with Peter, basically the, the way I introduced you, and then we'll, as I said, we'll kind of flip things around. Um, so Peter, the first question we're going to talk about is a, a little bit, um, I've got a couple of questions here about golf etiquette. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people ask questions, you know, what should I do here? I'm not uh, clear on, on what I should do in this situation. So I'm going to ask the question and just, you know, basically give us an overview uh, of sort of the do's and don'ts and the why's uh, as that. And the question is here is where should I walk uh, when I'm on the putting green? So a lot of people, when they come up, they hit their approach shots, they're landing on the green somewhere, and they don't always, some of the amateurs especially, don't know the protocol, where they should be walking, where they can't walk, that sort of thing. So just kind of give us a, a general uh, broad overview. Yeah, of course. And I think as you're approaching the green, if you have your, um, you're carrying your bag or you're pushing a cart, just to be cognizant of where you're either pushing your cart relative to the putting surface or where you're putting your bag down. Uh, if you're carrying, you know, you clearly, clearly want to keep it um, off the putting surface and you want to, you know, leave your, your bag at the closest in the rough, um, you know, staying off the, the fringe area or the, the secondary shorter grass relative to the green. Uh, and then as you approach your ball, you just really want to be, you know, aware of where the people in your group, their, where their ball is, you know, be mindful of not, um, walking between their ball and the hole, so you're stepping on their line of play. Um, and then while they're while you're putting and playing, you, you really want to try to stay out of the whoever is playing, you know, peripheral vision, or or stay away from the opposite side of the hole of where they'd be putting too. So um, that's kind of the the ebb and flow, and just again keeping your your bag off bag or your push card off the playing surface not walking in the person's line of play or and or distracting the the person who's playing from from their shot. Right. And and basically just to to kind of give a quick overview of of what you're saying is obviously if you're if you're walking on the course and carrying or using a pull cart you want to leave that certainly off the putting surface and don't bring it onto the green. Um obviously if you're in a in a power cart if you're driving uh, you definitely want to keep that away. Most courses will have uh, certain rules, whether it be, uh, you know, staying on the uh, cart path at all times or might have a 90-degree rule, uh, depending on the circumstance and the time of year. Sometimes they will uh, be flexible on that. But um, you definitely want to stay off the surface with your equipment. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, a couple of things you want to stay out of the line of sight uh, of your uh, playing partners as they're putting their their um, uh, making you know trying to make their putts uh, and you definitely don't want to stop or step into their uh, uh, path if you will between the ball and the hole and uh, potentially uh, mark up uh, uh, the turf uh, as you're as you're going through so you want to be mindful of that as well so some great points um, Clint I want to talk to you uh, and this is one I know that you're uh, familiar with uh, again we're going to keeping under the theme here temporarily uh, golf etiquette mm-hmm. um, and, and the question is does the best score from the last hole always play first another way to uh, this is referred to as, as honors. Um, give us an idea of that and sort of the protocol again of uh, uh, typically. And obviously, I know that there are uh, hard and fast rules in tournament play, and they certainly can be flexible more. And but generally, what are overall the rules uh, when it comes to that particular scenario? Well, Ted, it really comes down to who you're playing with and kind of what the customary thing is. I know when we play, if we're just like yesterday, yesterday we played. And we play ready golf. Whoever gets to the tee box first hits. Um, 
you know, but that's just the way we play. And that, that helps us move along and, and everything goes. But I, I think if you're playing in your, you know, Saturday morning uh, four ball and, and uh, you got a match going, there is some, you know, some competitive advantage behind if you won the last hole, you should hit first or, you know, or, or whatever. So whoever has the lowest score on the previous hole, you know, historically always has the honor. And in tournament play or, you know, the local match play event for the club championship, I think those those customs should be observed. But on a day-to-day basis, if you just, you and two or three guys are out playing golf just to enjoy the afternoon, we play ready golf. And, and that helps the speed of play. Um, so I think you just have to have to have some sense of what kind of match you're playing today and, and then go accordingly. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great idea, particularly um, with so many golf courses, you know, being filled up during the day. I think playing ready mm-hmm. golf, as you pointed out, is a, is a great way to adopt. Now, obviously, there are certain situations, again, in tournament play and and, uh, you know, maybe a more serious match uh, where, of course, you're going to um, uh, honor the honors, if you will. Uh, but I think in right. this particular day and age where slow pay has become such a huge issue for so long, I think being playing ready golf. And again, it depends on your playing partners. If you're playing with uh, okay. if you're just joining a, a group that you're not familiar with, then obviously you want to establish that before you play. The reason why I ask that, I know they seem like very simple questions to start off with, but the reason why is you would be surprised, guys, at how many uh, you know, people, especially new golfers, and even some that have been around for a little while, don't always understand proper etiquette. And a lot of times, you know, you get out there with a group and, and somebody's just not adhering to what is what I would consider to be good etiquette. And I think it's important for us uh, periodically just to sort of remind everybody on, on some examples. Um, uh, great answer, guys, by the way. Um, Chuck, uh, we're going to move into the full swing here. And this is a question that quite often we hear uh, the players and, and um, you know, some of our, our students talk about is, and that is how hard should I swing? Uh, it's a common question. Uh, you know, obviously most golfers want to hit the ball as far as possible, uh, especially when they're first getting started in the game. They're trying to really, uh, you know, smoke it out there, if you will. Um, but is there sort of a tried and, and true of how hard I should be swinging the club? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think that, you know, you can swing as hard uh, as you want. And, well, let me let me back that up. You can swing as fast as you want as long as you can maintain balance and hit the ball in the center of the club face. Um, swinging hard is what we all typically see out on the tee line every day. And that's people lunging at it, trying to generate speed. So, you know, my, my thing is, is you want to, you want controlled uh, power, not power controlled distance. So what that means is if you're swinging the club fast, okay, that's a lot different than trying to hit the ball hard. So if you can swing, a, I'll give you a perfect example. Years ago, you know, I could get it up to about 127 by hitting it all over the club face. Well, when I get down to 120, I could hit it in the middle. So even though it was seven miles an hour less, it went farther because I hit it in the sweet spot every time. Right. So it's not always about it's not always about swinging it as hard as you can. And you know, Sam Snead always said he never swung more than seventy five, eighty percent of his full power. So I would advise most people to try to keep that in their range. That doesn't mean you don't complete your backswing. You make a complete backswing, 
you make a complete downswing. But you do it at a pace that's less than full. Right. And I think, you know, a, a lot of um, teaching pros will uh, a lot of times say to their students, you know, in that sort of 80% range is a, uh, a sort of a good rule of thumb, if you will. Um, that way you're not really, um, you know, swinging at full capacity in your Again, as you pointed out, you want to swing within balance. One of the things, and that's really a good test, I think, for most of our amateur golfers, is that if you're not able to keep balance when you complete your swing, then obviously there there could be a few factors, but one particular is that maybe you're swinging a little bit too hard uh, for the particular shot, and it's causing you to lose balance. Uh, there are obviously other factors that could be playing in there as well. but uh, So you want to slow it down a little bit, but you certainly want to be able to give an effort. And also, too, there might be situations – uh, where you might be able to step it up a little bit, so you want to have a little bit reserve, if you will. Um, Clint, I'm going to, uh, or sorry, Peter, I'm going to come back to you on this round here, and then I'll mix it up a little bit later on. Um, and, and this sort of follows into to what Clint was talking about, and that is how far back should I swing the club in my backswing? Again, this comes uh, down to uh, things like distance and and uh, accuracy and things like that. So people sometimes wonder, well, how far should I be swinging the club back? Give you your thoughts there. It depends on what, how, what you can do to deliver the club and make solid contact. Very similar to what Clint just said. It's, it's, there's many times that players are overextending and trying to make this uh, stereotypical uh, full backswing, but end up having to manipulate the club so much and manipulate their body to a position that, you know, making the forward swing effective and making very good contact is, is very very difficult so um it's really a point of discovery for every player and with the guidance of a coach or an instructor what's going to be effective uh, for that player you know I, a case study i did over this past winter examined the golf swing the full swing as a duration of time and during the test people were and i was gathering data people were asked to make the duration of time longer or shorter than their normal swing and they could select how they wanted but about 80 percent of people made their backswing longer or shorter and it was decidedly on the if people made the backswing longer then their quality of contact went by, went down by 200 percent or became more inconsistent by about 200 percent and for the people who opted to be shorter than normal and we verified it with 3D, their contact became much more effective on that 80% than than the others. So it was really interesting to see on a on a case study basis of what it was what it actually was when people were able to select a shorter backswing basically and what it did to effectively their contact. Yeah, and, and and obviously there are a number of factors as you, as, uh, you pointed out here. I mean, obviously their uh, weight balance. I mean, you know, if they're swinging back or overextending, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of times they're not going to be able to keep good balance through the swing because it's going to cause them to, uh, uh, once they overextend, a lot of times their weight's going to be shifted incorrectly in some cases. And ultimately when they try to uh, regain, if you will, their composure, a lot of times it forces the weight in the wrong direction. So there's a lot of different factors. And obviously, again, um, sometimes they're forcing that speed 
through the downswing and, and through impact, and a lot of times uh, ending in some uh, not so pleasant results. So, uh, great answer there as well, um, Clint. I'm I'm going to come to you now, and I want to ask uh, this question to you, and and this really talks about uh, at impact is a lot of golfers again kind of get confused with this. We especially with our higher handicappers, we see this quite often. And the general question is this: Should I be hitting up on the ball at impact? Uh, in, in all of my shots or the specific shots uh, where that might be applicable or not applicable, uh, give us an overview of traditionally um, in order to, uh, you know, improve uh, your ball striking and that, what should be happening at impact? Well, obviously I, I think we would agree that with an iron, we want to be hitting down because the, we want to catch the ball first uh, and, and then carry on through with a, with a good club angle with impact. You know, the, the science today shows a little bit more opposite of that, that we need to be hitting up on the ball, particularly with a driver, you know, to, to maximize club head speed. You know, there's there's a lot of science here that, that, that would be uh, usable to prove, you know, how you want to do it. But as far as what I see people doing today and what you read and you recognize what other instructors are doing, uh, it, it seems to me that we're getting a little bit more of the ground force idea where you're actually, you know, kind of pushing off and, and maybe hitting a little bit more on an upward scale versus what the old school used to be is hitting, you know, down and through the ball and pinching it or, you know, uh, with an iron and maybe trying to get more of a sweeping action with the wood. So I, I think it really almost comes down to philosophy of, of how you want your students to do this and where you think that particular uh, student would would benefit from uh, it, but I, I still believe old school. We want to hit hit the ball first, hit down and through with the iron, and hit a little bit more up on the woods uh, with the driver, particularly. Is uh, let me just sort of ask a follow up to that, uh, sure. if you don't mind, and that is when you, given the fact of today's equipment, as opposed to what it might have been 30 years ago, technology now and equipment obviously is helping to get the ball. Uh, more airborne um, right. and obviously improving distance in that. Does that play a factor with some of the more modern equipment on, on how we approach the, the ball through impact? Well, it certainly does. I mean, you, you look at what the guys used to have to do with hickory versus, you know, the, the more classical swing versus the modern swing. Well, it certainly does. And that's where you see, you know, I, I think we, we're beginning, if and we already see it, I guess, uh, the evolution of how me at 62 years old, how I was taught by right. people that their their mentors were Hogan and Sneed and Nelson. That's who they learned from, okay, and how we're teaching younger players to play today. You know, I was taught to be a, a, a hands and arm releaser of the face of the club. So mm -hmm. that's how they perceived it happening. In today's world, these, these guys are body releasers. You know, they're – they're maintaining the angle all the way through the backswing and down through and, and releasing and squaring the club face and moving it through the impact zone with their uh, full body turn, um, which is, you know, totally different than what may we've been taught 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Okay? Um, right. So certainly the equipment has obviously changed how we teach people how to play. And it's obvious at that point also that the, the, the better equipment or the more highly technological equipment we play with today versus 50 years ago is having an impact on how people play. I mean, I don't think I would have ever heard my instructor tell me to hit up, to, to try to hit up on the driver. 
you know, he would have told me to just we want to sweep the driver and hit down and play the ball back a little bit and play it hit down and through the irons. You know, in today's world, that may not be exactly what what's being taught. Uh, but back in the day, with the equipment it was, and so it was done. You know, and, and also too, Clint. The other thing is, um, you know, we've got the introduction over the last uh, several years of the hybrid clubs, uh, and obviously, depending on which sure. ones you play, um, you know, hybrid clubs, even though they look or favor more um, that of a, a fairway wood or, or something similar. Um, uh-huh. Many of them are again hitting more of a downward motion mm-hmm. uh, and or to a slightly sweeping sure. motion than hitting up. So uh, again, the equipment does play a factor in today's um, uh, grand scheme of things and how we play the game. So it, it, it's the reason I, again why I'm asking a lot of these questions is quite often we get students that get out there and we see them on the practice tee and they're not doing a lot of things. Uh, and obviously, I know there's individuality, and I understand all that. But mm-hmm. there are certain basic principles that have to be maintained. And obviously, as we learn uh, the more modern game, there have been some changes and adjustments along the way. But the principles, if you will, have still remained the same uh, overall for for many many decades. And I think this is what people need to understand, like impact position and and so forth. Um, Great answer, Clint. Thank you for that. Um, Chuck, I'm going to finish off with with you on this one here, and then we'll we'll start a different round. Um, This talks about grip pressure. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, folks are kind of tempted to to squeeze tight on the handle of the club while they're making their swing. Uh, This is obviously a natural reaction. I think a lot of people have. So how tightly should... Uh, one hold on to the grip of the club is there uh, again sort of a, uh, a, a, a common understanding uh, is there a reason why and a reason why not uh, one way or the other well you, you know a lot of people want you to hold the club super light and they get that reference to Sam Sneed said hold it like you're holding a baby bird but if you look at the photos of Sam Sneed the veins are popping out in his forearms Okay, so he's not holding right. the club lightly. Um, my, what I like to do is I tell people on a one to ten scale to hold it at a good eight or nine, but relax the joints, the wrists, the elbows, and shoulders, so that you and, and you go back to the to the uh, ball testing machines, club machines. You know, if you put a club in Iron Byron's hand and you and you tighten it as light as we're told to hold a golf club that club will fly out of Iron Byron's grip. On the other side of the coin, when they put that thing in there, you got to remember it has a joint. It basically has like a wrist joint that swivels. Um, so that's that's the analogies that I use. Um, if you see players with their hands continually coming off or they're wearing spots in their gloves, that's because the club is twisting in their hand. They're not holding it tight enough. And another example is I'll lay a club on the ground, and I'll take address position. And I'll have them just take their address. So I said, now hold this pretty light with the club on there, and now start the club back. Well, as soon as they start the club back, their hands tighten, so that shortens the muscles. So now the club is effectively shorter than when they started at address. So your pressure is going to change. If you hold it too light, your pressure is going to change as soon as you start the backswing. And then as soon as you start to transition, it's going to change again. So if it's going to keep getting tighter, why don't you just hold it tighter to begin with, but keep the joints nice and loose. 
yeah, and and you're exactly right. You know, a lot of times I always try to the rule of thumb is, um, you know, you can essentially have it as tight as you want, providing there is some fluidity and movement in your joints and obviously um, with your your arms and so forth. Because obviously, if you if you're so stiff and rigid, then you're not going to be able to cock your wrist properly in the backswing and and obviously uncock them in through the, uh, the follow through. So. You know, obviously, um, again, I I think that analogy that you pointed out um, about the baby bird, I think was, a, a, you know, at one point, as Clint talked about, you know, years ago, that's how everybody was sort of taught. But I think people mm-hmm. misunderstood what was really being talked about. And it was just the idea is that you didn't want to have such a, a death grip on the club that it created so much tension in your upper body that you weren't really able to move uh, fluidly through the golf swing, and I think people just misunderstood that uh, a little bit. But uh, but great answer. Now, one other thing, I, I want to follow up with you a little bit on this one, and then I'm going to move on to uh, some some more questions. Uh, talking about the grip, and again, obviously there are going to be some personal preferences and things like that. I know we don't have the ability uh, on this format right now to really show the grip, but I want to clear up um, for for the folks out there because again, there are a lot of different types of grips. But one of the things that we we commonly hear is and we're going to use as an example just for for those tuning into the show we're going to use a right-handed golfer um, when we're doing this explanation that obviously the, op- the opposite is going to be true for for a left-handed uh, golfer so what we're going to talk about just sort of flip it if you will and that'll be for your left-handed golfers um, but for right-handed golfer in that um, you know we often hear that the the handle of the club should be sort of at the base of the fingers if you will of the left hand as we take the grip and and uh, and uh, obviously in, in the fingers again with the right hand. But that's not necessarily true in every case because, again, it depends on the individual strengths of, of uh, that person. That So talk a little bit about that. Where is there a sort of a tried-and-true position where people should be holding the club uh, in, in their hands when they're gripping the club, or is there some room for flexibility? Well, I think there's room for flexibility as long as you keep it under the heel pad of your lead hand, which is the left hand. So some players will set it along the base of the fingers. Some players will set it diagonally from like the uh, middle joint of the index finger and then kind of diagonal down under the heel pad. Uh, The deeper you get it in the fingers, the more the angle is increased between the uh, club shaft and the left hand. Uh, Now, Bryson DeChambeau doesn't do either one of those. He holds it more up. Uh, more more of a palm grip because that right. gives that that that's what I call zeroing out any angle between the lead arm and the club shaft because uh, that's how he wants to do it. Uh, Mo Norman did something similar, but not right. as much as Bryson does. So again, yeah, it depends on on on, uh, on the player flexibility, what they feel like they can hold it. I mean, I, I can't tell you. We've all seen it. People come to the come to us and stop the backswing, the left, the fingers are off the left hand, you know, and, right. and why are they off? Well, they're either not holding it tight enough. It's at the wrong angle. Okay. For them. And they're right to right hands way too dominant. And it's pulling uh, in excess of this club face cocking motion. Right. Um, so it would be the, you know, uh, the, the, the radial, what's called a radial deviation, the cocking of the club. And if that double cocks, what I call double cocks, that's a real good way to get your fingers to come off the club. 
Yeah, and I think also too, you know, it, it's interesting you point that out because uh, again, I think for somebody that's more uh, has more wrist action, if you will, some people, as you know, Clint, you talked about that, where you know you were sort of taught with more arm and, and wrist. Uh, I think uh, again, you probably want to have uh, that club in your fingers or closer to um, being held more in your fingers than in a, a palm grip. But for those that want maybe a little firmer uh, left hand grip. Uh, a palm grip might be a little bit more appropriate. But again, this is something that, again, can be more of a personal thing. And obviously, uh, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I think that, you know, this is something else, too, that we have to guard against. And I always try to, you know, we talked about this uh, on the last week's show about, you know, so much information coming at the, the average golfer right now, whether it be through YouTube videos and things, and everybody's sort of trying to pigeonhole somebody into one way or the other. And I think, um, you know, Peter, as you've talked about many times on the show, uh, you know, we really have to look at the individual golfer and sort of help customize what's going to be best for him or her based on one, their abilities, but, but also based on um, really what they're trying to accomplish and not just sort of put them into a, a single box. So, um, you know, I think we have to have that flexibility. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to sort of touch that a little bit tonight. Um, Peter, I'm coming to you on this one here. Uh, and, this talks about really uh, during the uh, the swing and particularly at, at, at uh, setting up is uh, can the shoulder alignment affect my golf shot? So the direction that the club head is traveling uh, in at as it impacts the ball uh, or your swing path, uh, is it influence uh, the accuracy of your shot depending on how your shoulders are aligned? What What's going on there? Do the shoulders need to be aligned? specifically, particularly at address and obviously through the golf swing. Um, give us an, an overview, if you wouldn't mind, of that. It can, for sure. Um, it depends on what the player is looking to do or what's most effective for them to operate the club. But, you know, if, if a player is, <clears throat> you know, we'll say relative to the other body parts, it, it generally – as long as it's not so far one way or the other that it's going to stand in the way of progress, it's fairly irrelevant. But, you know, if they're looking to move the club and most effectively move the club to the right of the target or in to out, as, as it's known, you know, a, a closed shoulder line can help. If they have a tendency to come over the top or whatever like that, or that's a negative part of their swing, then that can be effective most efficiently the shoulders are going to be open open to the target line at address but it's very it's very personal that's a it's a very difficult question to ask or right. to answer in the sense of right and wrong because for one person it can be extremely effective to be closed or open and for the next person it can be ineffective so it, that that one's difficult. I can't really. That, I guess it, my answer would well, be it let, depends. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let me. No. That's that's good. Well, let me let me Peter expand on that a little bit just to give the folks yeah. an example for those that you know sure. have watched uh, TV over the years. Uh, some of the older golfers. And I'm going to use this one as probably one of the best examples I can think of, and that is Lee Trevino. You know, Lee Trevino always particularly had a dress, always had his shoulders open. But what a lot of people didn't identify is even though his shoulders were open uh, to the target. Uh, so were his his feet. Um, so they were actually in line for the most part. Now they might have been slightly open still, 
compared to his his um, his feet at address, but um, they were generally, but to the average eye, if you will, um, looking at it on especially the camera views quite often that we would receive. Okay. So um, it looked so it looked like, like his shoulders were completely open. Right. So in the context yep. of that. I guess you're referring it to as for alignment purposes, right? Like it, it your shoulders and feet have nothing, almost nothing to do with your alignment. It, you know, 75% of the club face direction at impact is responsible for irons, the start direction of your ball for irons, and 85 for a driver. So your face angle at impact, and then inherently at address is far more important than your shoulder or your feet or hips or any of that being oriented either equal to each other or the target. So if you can most often effectively align your club face to the target, there's an unlimited number of ways you can stand. Obviously that's not outlandish, but you can still control your ball very well and reach your target effectively. It's, Right, and, and, and that's why I wanted to bring this particular topic up because, you know, as I mentioned, there were obviously examples that we could use, and, and I used him because he was one of the most obvious, uh, certainly noticeable yeah, to, to the naked a, eye. Yeah, yeah. and – But, uh, again, a, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, there are a few others. I mean, uh, not quite as, as uh, excessive as, as Lee, but, um, but, you know, a lot of people would look at that and think, well, you know, he's got his shoulders way open and that, and – uh, and you know, obviously his feet were as well, but that really um, was not indicative of the club path. He actually rerouted the club uh, and was able to uh, to come in and and meet the, the ball squarely. And funny enough, even though he had a a, a, a very open stance at address, uh, quite often he was very easy uh, able to draw the ball, which you would think would be counter intuitive to base how he was set up you would think he'd be hit a you know a, either a fade or a big old slice which he could certainly do that at, at command too but uh, he was actually able to draw that ball from that position so it goes to your point peter about club face the um you know how it actually affects uh the direction and path so um no that was a great answer and that's a tough question because again it goes to uh the individuals and and so forth um chuck i'm going to come back to you and i'm going to mix it up a little bit i'm going to come to you on this one here and then and then clint uh, I'm going to come back to you. Um, so, Chuck, on this one here, you know, th this is a question quite often too that you might hear uh, throughout your travels, and that is talking about the width, uh, the width of the stance, and how, if at all, it can affect the length of my swing. So, some people have, you know, watched whether it be on the Golf Channel or they've read in the magazines. Well, if I have a wider stance, I'm going to be able to take a, a much bigger or fuller uh, backswing, and that's going to help uh, increase my distance. Uh, is that a myth? Is that true? Or, or give us sort of the skinny on that, if you wouldn't mind. Well, you know, the wider the stance, typically, the less rotational move you'll have in the downswing. Uh, you'll have to make a pretty good linear movement, a slide before you can rotate. Um, the, narrower, the narrower the stance, the, the easier it is to fall out of balance. That's why you use shorter stances, narrower stances for short shots because you, they're not power. Um, the rule of thumb that I kind of go by is for uh, for an irons, it's the inside of your heels to the outside of your hips and for a driver, inside heels to outside shoulders. So uh, 
I mean, I get people all the time that come in and their stances, their their width is, it just doesn't match their body. Doesn't allow them to do what they want to do. You know, they're trying to rotate more and they got a stance that looks like a sumo wrestler, you know, so that's, you're not going to rotate much with that wide of a stance. But I don't think there's a, uh, the general rule is obviously it's a little bit wider for longer clubs and a little more narrow for shorter clubs. Because again, if you're hitting wedges, chips, or, you know, 40 yard and in pitches, you don't need tremendous amounts of power. You just need stability and you need to be able to, to rotate so that this club, as Clint and I were taught, wasn't flipped, you know, and rotated past. I mean, that was one of the things talking about the grip. If you have somebody's wrist doesn't doesn't move much, it's not going into pronation or supination. Uh, typically, those players have really high in their palms, so when you put it in the fingers, they can rotate it more. And if they rotate too much, move the grip up to the palm a little more. And it's the same way with the stance. Experiment with the width of the stance. But I think the key ingredient to with the stance. And in a stance in general, is foot flare. Uh, you see way too many players trying to have their feet square. Well, the feet angle, okay, the foot angles control the hip girdles. So if I have my if I have my feet square, I'm going to be able to turn a certain distance and then turn a certain distance. But if I flare my feet, and you go back to Trevino, if you look at Trevino, his front foot is 45 degrees open. But he also right. ran 30 yards left of the target, you know. So he basically hit push cuts most of the time, as Freddie Couples does, you know. Uh, Azinger, another one that had a lot of open uh, stance and hit and just hit cuts. But as far as the feet, yeah, get get those feet flared, and then experiment with your width of stance. But again, like I say, for uh, irons. It was always inside heels to outside or outside of hips, and for driver, inside heels to outside shoulders. Right. And, and the other thing I just want to sort of, again, a quick follow-up on that, and then, uh, Clint, I'm going to come to you, um, with respect to the stance. How does or does it affect, if you're widening your stance, let's say as an example, is that now going to affect ball position um, for what you typically – so if you typically set up, as you uh, talked about earlier – uh, how most uh, or sort of average golfers are, are, are you know, uh, setting up with their stance for irons and, and driver. Now, if they're widening those uh, two uh, variables, if you will, uh, is that going to now affect where they place the ball in relation to what they typically would have it? Yeah, so, so let's say you're one of those proponents of playing the ball off the left heel, but you have a real narrow stance. Well, that's going to be somewhere around the logo side, the left side of your chest. But if your stance is super wide and that ball is still on the left heel, now the ball is positioned clear outside your shoulder. So uh, my reference with my players is we don't use the feet at all to reference the ball. We use the upper body. Right. Because the width of the upper body is probably not going to change during the course of the round, but the width of the stance right. will. <laughs> Yes, that's a good. That's a good. Well, unless you hole out uh, on a few putts or something, and you might pull your your shoulders back and puff your chest out, then you might uh, you might change that that uh, a little bit. All right, Clint, um, I'm going to come to you on this one here, and this okay. uh, of course is talking a little bit about wind play. Um, what should I adjust 
when I'm playing golf in the wind? Are there certain things to, um, uh, again, as I was just talking with Clint a little, or uh, Chuck, excuse me, um, you know, am I going to adjust my stance? Uh, and again, give me some examples of, of obviously maybe a, a, a gustier wind and maybe just a, a gentle wind. Um, what's going to be affected? What do I need to change my stance? Is the ball position going to be changing? Just give us a kind of an overview. Well, I mean, obviously, if we're, if we're downwind uh, or end of the wind, you know, if it's a if it's a really severe wind, playing downwind is just as hard as it is playing upwind because you know, push your ball down. I've always tried to get a person not to think in terms of I've got to do something different. Is I've always tried to get a person to understand that that if you're playing into the wind, you want to not spin the ball so much because if you get it spinning, it's going to spin it on up. So we try to kind of, to hit, you know, kind of a stinger uh, type trajectory, uh, but we do that by not moving a trying to hit a low seven iron. I'm going to try to take a six iron, choke down a little bit, and just try to take some of the spin off the ball, much like you hear. People talk about, you know, taking spin off the wedge. You know, instead of hitting a hard sand wedge, mm-hmm. let's kind of knock down a, a, a 50 degree. Well, that takes spin off the ball, whether you're hitting a five iron or a six iron or whatever it is, that theory takes spin off the ball. So I've always tried to get people to understand you want to control your trajectory, not necessarily with, with moving the ball back or up or aiming, is with the club selection you make and how you use that tool. Okay. Um, you know, obviously, the, the, if we want to hit the ball lower, we tend to move the ball back. Uh, if we want to hit it up a little higher, we'll move it up. To me, that disrupts your normal swing timing and rhythm of your swing to move the ball back uh, to try to hit a low seven iron when I got a six iron in my back or a five iron. So if I want the ball to go right. lower, I don't want to try to change the swing I'm working on. I've developed and spent time out on the range. I want to change the tools to get me the shot pattern I'm looking for. The same way we, why we use a putter on the putting green. I don't use my driver there because that tool is not the one I should use there to get the ball pattern I'm looking for or flight pattern. So if I want to hit a little lower shot into the wind or, or whatever, I'm going to pick the tool that's going to give me the trajectory I want. Now, obviously, I'm not going to hit maybe hit that six iron as far as I normally would. So I'm going to take a little bit of leverage out of the club. I'm going to choke down on it, but try to make as normal a swing as I can and let the tool get me the trajectory and the shot pattern I'm looking for. Um, and I, I tend to even think the same way if I'm playing really downwind. I don't want to give the wind control of my golf ball. Right. I, I want to try to keep it out of the wind both ways, into the wind or downwind. Because as we well know that the 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 – the ball's going to fly straight or going down wind, but you lose control of it. Uh, so uh, I've always wanted to try to get a person to use the tools in their bag. We've got 14 clubs in our bag. They're all designed to create different flight patterns. Stay with the swing that you know you can get good ball contact with and change the tools to get you the trajectory pattern you're looking for. Yeah, and and choking down and and uh, and so forth. You know, this is the thing. Is I think sometimes people try to get too cute, if you will, and and try to sure. change their actual swing, as opposed to just using a different club. You know, a lot of times, you know, That's we'll see point. people that yeah. yeah, you know, maybe have to punch out from the woods or something, and they're pulling their wedge out because they only got a short distance to go and think, well, that's the club they need to use. Well, the 
problem they don't realize is they've got yeah. low-hanging branches that they're going to end up hitting up well, into. So, so you know, so th- there's a lot of different things. I, I know you can make modifications to that, some of the better players, but sure. you know what I'm talking about. You, you have to. You've got 14 clubs right. in the bag, as you suggest, and you know, uh, you, you know, know, you can take a, a different. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead. One of the things that I always used to talk to people that got it out in the woods and they got to hit a low shot to get it out, and they're trying to figure out whether they hit a six iron or a seven iron. I said, what you want to do is hit the club that's going to guarantee you the shot pattern you want. So if you need to hit a low shot, how what's the chance of you getting your three wood off the ground from there? Right. Take your three wood, choke down on it, and make sure it stays on the ground. You know, get it underneath that limb. You know, how many times have you or I both said, well, I'm going to hit this eight iron here. It's going to go underneath that limb, and it just pop up in there and hit the limb anyway. Right? Right. So I right. don't want to hit that marginal club. I want to hit the one that's going to give me the flight pattern that's going to guarantee me to get it, get it out of there and, and give myself some open spaces to play my next shot from. And I agree. It's all about using the tools you have to give you the shot pattern you're looking for. Chipping, putting, full swings, whatever it is. That's why we use a driver off the tee. It's a club that's supposedly gives us the most distance. So that's why we choose it. Right, exactly. Well put. Um, all right, finally, uh, what I'm going to do is um, just very quickly, and I'm going to go through the, the order that we started, um, just going back, because we're getting close to, for most anyways, winding up the, the season and for a lot of us, um, or certainly for some out there. Um, I want you guys just to... to maybe give us just a general overview of one of the most difficult, you know, we all have tough lessons sometimes and we don't have to get specifics as the who's and the what's, but um, a, a tough lesson that you had this season, what was one that, uh, that really uh, you found the most challenging for you as an instructor, if you can think of one. And if you can't, then give us the opposite, uh, one of the best uh, or most rewarding uh, lessons that you gave this year. Peter, I'm going to start with you and then Clint and then Chuck. Uh, I'm going to go with most rewarding. Um, it was a <clears throat> a player of mine, a good friend as well. Um, nine months ago, fell off a ski lift, had 21 fractures in his body. Uh, two weeks ago, I watched him swing a club for the first time, and it was amazing. It wasn't great. It, it was it was tight. It was limited. It was everything that you really don't want, but it was great to see him swinging and able to move with speed, make pretty good contact and to make a, a step in the right direction to getting him back playing and, and enjoying the game. It's been a tough couple of years for him. So that was for me by far the best and uh, looking forward to keeping him going. Yeah. And, uh, uh, congratulations on that. I know it's not easy, uh, both to, to you and he. Obviously, you as, as somebody that's helping him to uh, regain some of that uh, um, ability, but uh, obviously for him to be willing to step, as they say, get back up on the horse, if you will, uh, after going through a, a tough situation like that. So that's a, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Clint, what about yourself? Was there a challenging uh, lesson this season, uh, or uh, if yeah. not uh, – what about a rewarding one that, that maybe uh, that you might want to share? I, I think that, that the one I'll share with you very quickly is one of both. Is it um, yeah, a young lady been been working with and known her for a good while and, and um, 
just she just couldn't get past that seventy three or seventy four, wanting to you know to to get it a little bit better. And we've sat down and went over her her stats and everything. And she's kind of being a little stubborn about, well, you know, my iron game's not good. I said, look, it's not your iron game. And finally, it, it, finally <laughs> she got it. Okay. Finally, she figured out that you, you just can't spend that much more time trying to hit 14 greens versus 13. It really came down. She got the idea. She just wasn't chipping it close enough to make enough putts. And, and so that was a complicated uh, conversation we had over several months. And then finally the the light went on and the bicycle got really good. She could ride it and said, oh, I got it now. Mm-hmm. I got it. And now you see her going to the practice screen and the chipping green to work on speed control and trajectory control in that third shot around the green when she missed it, that now she gets a chance to shoot in the 60s every now and then. Okay? Right. So the, the, really the hard lesson was is having to – to stay with it because it was really important. So, well, I've already said all I can say I'm ready to give up. <laughs> but then finally yep. it clicked. And, and the nice thing now is you see her come to the guy for us. She doesn't get range balls or practice balls. She just walks out with a few balls out of her bag, and that's what she's working on. Uh, right. Because she, right. Becomes, because she realized to be satisfied with what she was doing everywhere else. Yeah, that's a great story as well. You know, just to add to that, you know, the thing that is very rewarding is when the light, as you said, does kind of go off uh, or go on rather, um, because it it can be very frustrating when you're trying to articulate different things and different aspects and people are not getting it. And they're continually going, trying to work on things that are not really uh, going to help improve in the areas that necessarily they need to. But, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, kudos to you for sticking with it and obviously helping her to, to transition through to the other side, yeah. <laughs> the other side. If yeah. You will. Transition um, to the other side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> open the door and walk through. Um, Chuck, what about you? Anything uh, that stands out uh, this season that was a little bit uh, difficult uh, uh, or, uh, or rewarding or both? Well, I think that, that every session has some degree of difficulty in it. Uh, not necessarily from our standpoint, but from the player's standpoint, and that is to change their uh, their movement patterns for what they've done forever to something that they're not familiar with. And then once that's done, getting in to realize, like Clint said, uh, you know, if you get one more fairway or one more green, that's not going to change it that much. Um, you know, so most of my people now, when they go to play, instead of hitting three large buckets before they play and hitting one putt on the putting green. Now they hit what I call a warm-up sleeve. They'll hit like three or four balls, and they go chip the putt mm-hmm. and hit some little pitches, you know. So, but that's, you know, that's kind of how the, the whole business is, you know, is is our job is, everybody has a job. Our job is to inform and explain, and their job is to absorb and apply. So we can be great communicators. We can give them all that information, but if they don't absorb that, they don't apply that, then it doesn't work for either side. Right, exactly. And obviously there's a there's a right time when to access that information. Um, accessing all that information as far as the how-tos and the whatnot, 
um, is something to do on the practice tee. But when you get out on the golf course, you don't want to be thinking about all the, the lessons that we've had and all the uh, things that we've uh, been taught. Uh, now we want to have a clear mind and get out there and just get the job done. And that's difficult for a lot of people. So I know that's one thing that um, you know I, I'm trying to do with a lot of my students is, is to really get them to focus on uh, keeping their mind focused on, on one thing, and that is what is it you want to accomplish um, obviously to shoot uh, better scores and not get into all the technical garb when they get out on the golf course. Save that for the lesson tee, you know, for the practice tee. Let's work out all the bugs and the kinks there, but not take it to the golf course. And that's not an easy thing uh, for a lot of people to do. All right, very quickly, guys, we'll go through the order again, uh, starting with Peter Clinton and Chuck. Um, great show. Uh, as always, thank you guys for, uh, for always bringing your best. Uh, let the folks know the best way to reach out. If there's anything specific that you want to plug at this time, now's the time to do it. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, again, Ted, thanks for having me on, and guys, thanks for, for sharing your time and knowledge with me. I uh, appreciate it. Um, and people can reach me at um, on social at uh, Daily Golf Coach. Uh, that'd be most platforms. Uh, they can reach out to me at uh, Peter at GoNPI.org, or find out more about what we do at Northeast Performance Institute at uh, www go npi.org npi thanks so much Dan. perfect no problem all right clint uh best way to, to reach out to you and anything specific that uh you're interested in plugging right now well not really i mean it's been a great year i mean we've had some we've had some fun here over, over the past 12 months and i appreciate you letting me be still being included in this thing i i have uh <laughs> done my best to get run off a few times but that's okay uh, but no, everybody should have a nice Thanksgiving and, and, uh, you know, seasonal greetings for everyone. And, and, uh, if they want to talk or chat or email, it's Clint golf zero zero one at yahoo.com. Just that simple. And, and again, guys, I appreciate everything you said here tonight and all through the year and look forward to next year. All right. Well, I think you actually have one more show before the year closes out, Clint. So don't, uh, don't drift cool. off in, in the, right. yeah, don't drift off in the sunset quite yet, but, uh, I think you're back one more time. Not, yeah, we do all. Um, That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, Chuck, yeah, Chuck, go ahead. Uh, you can reach me through uh, chuckevansgolf.com. Uh, my email, uh, phone number's all up there. I'm on uh, all the social media as Chuck Evans. Um, also visit uh, uh, the ultimate guide to golf.com, uh, and there are uh, lots of free uh, training videos, um, PDFs, download reports, uh, workout schedules, things like that. So um, I wish everybody to have a, a good Thanksgiving. Thanks for being on with you guys. It's always a pleasure. And I uh, hope the rain stops here so we can uh, get back to it and go Chiefs. <laughs> well said. Well, guys, as always, uh, again, thank you very much for uh, coming on and, and spending some time here on the Coach's Corner panel. It's always a, a pleasure, and I, I feel like I uh, get a great opportunity not to not only to have you guys share your stories with the audience, uh, but I always uh, learn a little bit of something along the way as well. So um, happy Thanksgiving to all of you guys. Have a great holiday, and I believe I will be seeing all of you again one more time uh, next month on Coach's Corner uh, before we close out the season. So thank you very much, guys. Have a very uh, special uh, Thanksgiving this season. All right. See you, Ted. See you, boys. Talk to you later.
All right, that was um, Peter Agazarian, Cl uh, Chuck Evans, and Clint Wright uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel, as always, doing a, a, a great job. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, always having the, the, the group, if you will, on uh, the beginning of the show. All right, uh, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, obviously, the uh, Coach's Corner panel, of course, is sponsored by uh, Golfswing.com. Take a listen to this clip, and then I'll tell you about some uh, upcoming uh, uh, events uh, this season and uh, about closing out the, uh, the season with uh, our final show. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? Golfswing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, Golfswing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, Golfswing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at Golfswing.com. All right. Uh, again, a special thank you uh, to the folks at Golfswing.com for sponsoring the Coaches Corner panel this season. Uh, just got a few more shows this year, and then we'll be uh, signing off for an extended period of time. Uh, just a couple of quick notes before I introduce tonight's uh, special guest. Um, next week, of course, being Thanksgiving, uh, there will not be uh, a Golf Talk Live or uh, Women of Golf show, on, which is, uh, of course, airs on Tuesday mornings with uh, my good friend and uh, partner in crime, if you will, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. Uh, we'll be not uh, doing a show next week, obviously, to observe uh, the holiday week and, and enjoy some of the festivities ourselves. Um, and then I will be, uh, or actually we will be returning back uh, on December uh, 3rd for the Women of Golf with uh, three more shows. And conversely, on the 5th of December for three more shows on the Thursdays. Uh, and then we'll be closing out the season. So for the Women of Golf, um, after next week, uh, the remaining shows will be the 3rd, 10th, and 17th on Tuesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And then uh, the following uh, Thursdays on each of those weeks, which will be, of course, the 5th, 12th, and the 19th. The 19th will be our final show uh, in December for uh, 2019. And then we'll be hitting it back up on the schedule uh, after the Christmas holiday break and then an extended break in January as I'll be uh, lining up for some new guests and so forth for the season, getting ready. We'll be uh, firing things back up with some uh, a few warm-up shows, if you will, uh, for the women of golf. We'll be starting back on February 4th in 2020, and conversely, Golf Talk Live, the first uh, season opener, will be on February 6th, that uh, following Thursday. And then, of course, Coach's Corner uh, will be starting up the first Thursday in March, as always, and then continue out through the end of the season. So uh, three more, sh more shows after tonight for each for the Women of Golf and Golf Talk Live uh, to end out the 2019 season. And then uh, early February, uh, after an extended break through Christmas and, and, uh, and else, uh, we'll be uh, ready to go again for 2020. And I've uh, got some other things I'm going to be uh, telling you about here in the weeks to come about uh, some other things happening. I've already giving you a little sneak peek uh, over the last uh, little bit uh, of what's coming up in the new year. I think you're going to really enjoy this, uh, but I'll save that uh, for a little bit later on. All right, as I mentioned, I've got two great guests coming on with me uh, this evening. Uh, first up, of course, is John Decker, who's also been on the Coach's Corner panel many, many times and uh, featured guests. Uh, he is a PJ instructor with GolfSwing.com and motivational speaker. 
Uh, he's the former teaching professional at the New Albany Country Club. Uh, he was the 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, prior to that, he was a head instructor at the Grand Cypress uh, Academy of Golf in Orlando, uh, where he worked under top 100 instructors Fred Griffin and Phil Rogers. Uh, he's also the author of the book, uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which has an accompanying Bible study. Uh, also joining uh, tonight's discussion is uh, another great guest, um, Dr. Angelica Napolitano, a.k.a. The Golf Doc, and uh, she is also the owner of Optimal Physical Therapy and Wellness in Jupiter, Florida, and together they are the hosts of the Golf Swing RX podcast, the prescription for your game. So please welcome my very special guest tonight, uh, John Decker and Angelica Napolitano. Good evening, Thank you, guys. Ted. Welcome. Thank hey, you, how are you guys? All right. Thank you very much, uh, Angel and John, for, for joining me tonight. And, John, welcome back to the land of the living. I know that you've had a little bit of an in interruption with your uh, your phone service there, unfortunately, but I'm glad that you're able to uh, to get back uh, on, on board. And I'm sure you're grateful for that, to have, uh, have that aspect taken care of. Um, guys, I, I want to just, uh, before we jump into... Um, tonight's uh, discussion. Uh, I know that we've had uh, a few other shows that you guys have done. We've kind of done a, a lead-in series. We talked about uh, the setup uh, a few uh, a couple of months ago, and then uh, last uh, time we were on, we talked about uh, transitioning in through the backswing and, of course, all of the accompanying uh, issues and so forth on both of those that, uh, uh, Angel, you were able to, to give us from uh, your perspective on some of the injuries, some of the preventative things in that. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, the transitioning area, if you will, or transition of the golf swing on John's side, and then we're going to talk about some of the uh, sequencing, if you will, of the downswing uh, with Angel. So um, great discussions, guys. I think you know what you're providing here is uh, very valuable information for a lot of the guests, and or sorry, for a lot of the listeners of the show and uh, one of the things that we've talked about here, and I'm going to sort of lead into what I was hinting at uh, about for next year, in addition to obviously you continuing to do your uh, podcasts, uh, you're going to be joining me uh, on uh, my new network, which is the iGolf Sports Network, uh, beginning uh, uh, probably uh, mid to late spring of, of 2020. And we're actually going to bring uh, them live, if you will, uh, on the network. Uh, to be able to do a, a really great show and be able to let you see some of the things that we're talking about here, uh, not only here on Golf Talk Live, but they've been talking about on their podcast as well, and a few other surprises along the way. So I hope you're going to enjoy us. I'm going to be giving that information as we uh, transition from this season into next season, but I just wanted to sort of uh, mention that before we get started. So, John, I'm going to start with you here uh, first and foremost, and that is to talk a little bit about, if you would, uh, to start things off tonight's discussion about the transition, uh, what is the transition of the golf swing? Well, Ted, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And Angel, I look forward to uh, uh, being on it tonight with you uh, as well. Um, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, uh, in your introduction there, talking about what we've talked about in the past and the setup and the backswing. Because if you don't have the proper setup, it's really difficult to work on your transition. Um, the transition um, is, of the golf swing is very much like when you were a child, if you were, um, you know, rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time. You're actually doing two things at once, and it can be very difficult when you first learn it. 
uh, what's going on in the transition is you as you start the club back with your back and shoulders, we we get the club moving back. The club is moving in one direction, yet the lower body has got is moving in the opposite direction. And this is where you really create the power in the golf swing, is having the ability to create a dynamic motion, very much like cracking a whip or or if you take a like in in gym class, a lot of times you take the towel and you pop the towel. You you change the direction of the towel or you change the direction of the whip or you change the direction if you do it properly with the golf club. That's how you create power. That's how you get the club to shallow out and come in on the right uh, swing path. Um, and, and that's what sets up the rotation. It really is the meat and potatoes of the golf swing. And it is by far the most difficult thing as an instructor to teach um, when you're when you're working with students because some people have a natural transition usually these are your uh, people maybe that have played tennis or played baseball or softball when they were growing up or maybe they're they're just used to throwing you know balls or throwing uh, whatever uh, they're just athletic athletic ability does make a difference but I've also worked in my years with professional athletes who are the best athletes in the world who do not have a transition in the golf swing. So just because you're a, a great uh, maybe track and field or maybe you're good at basketball or things like that doesn't mean that you'll have a transition. The transition is so subtle yet so important. And, and there's, um, you know, I'll get more into to how to learn the transition and everything, but I do know this as an instructor, it's not something that you can think through. So when you get the club going back and then you can say, okay, now my lower body is going to start going forward, it, it happens too fast. So it's something that, um, I, you know, I really encourage uh, my students to use drills when they're doing. But it's it's the most critical thing as an instructor that I look for. Uh, some people have it, like I said, naturally, and some people don't. So it's one of those things that I identify, but you've got to have the setup. You've got to have the proper backswing first before you can work on the transition. Right. Well said, John. Um, and Angel, I want for you to talk about here, um, you know, as John did, obviously, as I mentioned, and, and he's uh, sort of reaffirmed, you know, we talked about uh, the setup and, and obviously the backswing, getting things prepared uh, for this transition period, if you will, of, of now moving into the downswing. So talk about the sequencing of the downswing, because that's just as important as moving the transition into a, back, uh, a successful backswing now everything has to fall into place and has to work in a, in a proper sequence in order to get the optimal results. So talk about that from a, uh, from your standpoint. Yeah. So uh, John described it super super well um, with his you know we're moving in opposite directions uh, theory because it's it's true that's exactly what you're doing. Um, basically, your golf swing is it's not about swinging fast, hard. You know, swinging fast actually is not what you want to do. Um, you need mobility and segmental stabilization. So as we go into, as we're transitioning into the down, <coughs> excuse me, into the downswing, <coughs> we have to move our lower body first. It comes from the ground up always, remember, ground up. Okay, so our lower body has to start moving first. As the lower body starts to move towards the target to return back to the ball, our upper body is still lagging behind. And lag in these terms is a good thing. When you hear lag, you think bad. No, this is a good lag. And for the hips and the core, <clears throat> this is a big, powerful area of the body, big muscles, a lot of power can be stored, and that's exactly what we want to come from that transition. 
So when we're turning, the longer we move our hips and our, our arms and our torso and everything stays back, the more we're going to get a bigger what's called X-factor stretch. The more stretch we can get in between the lower body and the next part of the, um, the body that moves in the kinematic sequence, which is our torso or our trunk, the bigger stretch we have, the more power that we will generate. So you, you want to get a, lot, a larger time frame between those two. But then when it comes to the arms and the club moving, it's going to be um, a shorter amount of time because these are smaller muscles. So are you following me with this? I'm trying not to make it a physics lesson. But um, <laughs> nope. so think about it. Let me, let me put it into perspective. When, you, when someone goes to uh, do a vertical jump, right, we always, you know, squat down first. So we're loading our muscles, our quads, our, our glute, our buttock muscles in a stretched and lengthened position. So we're loading in that position, which stores power, and then we can explode up into the air and jump, right? Same thing with the golf right. swing. So the more we have that stretch between the hips and the upper body, the more power we're going to generate. So um, that's, that's super important when we're talking about the, the transition um, in the downswing. Um, but as I said, so it goes lower body, uh, upper body, trunk, arms, and club. That's the sequence. And every single good ball striker, every PGA tour player has the same exact sequence. Their swing may look so different from one to the next, but they all have one thing in common, and, and that's the sequence. So. Yeah, and, I, and well said, uh, uh, Angel, as well. Um, you know, John, this is something that – as instructors, we both see quite often with a lot of our students that because they get out of sequence in their downswing, obviously, again, it starts with um, first off, foremost, uh, having a proper setup uh, is going to get things hopefully moving in a, in a, in a proper way or certainly is going to help um, um, that resonate, if you will. Um, but this is an area that a lot of golfers struggle with is that transition uh, area in, in transitioning in through the downswing. So are there some things, if, if, if people want to learn the proper transitions, if you will, and proper downswing sequence, what are some things that, that you have found to be effective in helping people to understand that transition period? Well, I think, first of all, uh, I think Angel did an excellent job of explaining that. Um, and, and, and that's one of the first things I try to do is, is I try to explain it to, to the student because they need to understand how important it is because she's exactly right. Um, all great players have that sequence. Dustin Johnson does it as well as anyone you'll ever see. All of these young players, but if you look back at Nicholas and you look back at Trevino and all the players from years in the past, their swings might look different. Their takeaways and their – they may have some different, uh, you know, mannerisms and things like that. But if you look at their core sequence, that's what we're after. And the best way I have found to teach it, and I've taught private lessons, I've taught in golf schools for 20 years. Um, and when I would teach in golf schools, we would have groups of people and as many as 16 people. I mean, I would, you know, teach a lot of people at once. The best way to learn it is through drills. And um, I've got several drills that I use. I've got about three or four drills specifically for the transition. And, and I, I always tell my students, I don't care which one of these drills you like best or which one of these drills you can do, but if you can do one of these drills, you're going to improve your transition. Now, ultimately, I want you to be able to do all of these drills. 
And so I've, I've got a lot of my drills. All of my drills are going to be uh, on golfswing.com, but also they're on YouTube. Uh, they're a lot, they're a lot uh, you know, maybe less than a minute long. Uh, if you go on golfswing.com, you're going to get more, a lot more, uh, you know, analysis and stuff. But, but they're very brief, and they're very easy to do. And, and you think about kind of like a lot of the kids, and when I do junior camps, they always want to do the happy Gilmore where they come running up to the ball and they hit it. And, and I let right. them do that. Now, I make sure it's safe. I make sure that there's not, they're not all doing it at once because I know it's promoting the transition. They're stepping into the ball. You know, I don't, and, and it's amazing. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun and everything. And I think people might look at me like, are you crazy? You know, what are you doing over there? But it's actually a way to teach the transition. You have to make the transition athletic. It cannot be something that you think through. And, um, you know, so it's very important that you do, that you, that you have drills. I have the drills. If you'll go on YouTube under John Decker golf instruction, there's the tap and go. If you put in uh, John Decker golf instruction, tap and go, or John Decker golf instruction transition, those drills will pop up. You can watch them. Um, and I think it's a great way, uh, you know, to, to, to learn. Um, but it's very difficult. It's, it, they look easy, but it's what it, in my opinion, it's the most difficult thing to teach uh, as a golf instructor. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. And I think this is, probably why so many people struggle because it is uh and it goes to you know a point that we always make uh particularly on on coach's corner uh you know is practicing with with some sort of a purpose uh, a lot of people just go there and they're raking golf balls and hitting golf balls and they're wondering why they're not really improving well if your sequencing is out and you're not doing things correctly in the golf swing you can hit you know a thousand balls you can hit a hundred thousand balls over the next year or so um, you're not going to see uh, likelihood any improvement if your sequencing and other things are out. So uh, it, it's important that, you know, to, to do these drills that you're given, uh, and, and John, we'll let you, as we wrap up uh, later in the evening, uh, let you remind everybody, refresh everybody's memory as to where they can go and see some of these drills. Um, but, you know, once you put these in, into practice and you uh, sort of master them, if you will, a little bit, you're going to find and notice that the sequencing that you're, uh, doing and the transitioning uh, into that downswing is going to become a lot smoother. Um, so, so thank you for that, uh, John. All right, Angel, I want to ask you, uh, this is something too that um, we see a lot is obviously people that have maybe physical limitations that could be affecting the downswing mechanics. Uh, and a lot of times we see uh, swing faults. So, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily that they don't know what to do, but sometimes there's issues that they may be having that are preventing them uh, to perform those movements uh, as well as they should be able to. So talk a little bit about that, some of the, the issues that people may or limitations people may have. Yeah, so as John was saying, the drills are the best part for the student to, to learn, you know, the sequencing. But you have to first identify where in the range or where in the sequence that they're, you know, having some concerns and some faults. So, there are three things that make an inefficient uh, transition and downswing. It's the improper uh, swing mechanics and sequencing, physical limitations, um, poor conditioning, things like that, and then improperly fitted equipment. Um, so that's on the technical side. So I'm going to go into um, the physical side, which would be the limitations. A lot of times it's from poor thoracic mobility or poor hip mobility or both. 
right? So we're supposed to be very mobile in those segments of our body for the, for the golf swing and in general. That's just how it goes in life. Um, so when you don't, when you're not able to rotate around for a right-handed golfer, rotate around that stable left leg, you are lacking stability. Now it takes a, I'm sorry, mobility. It takes a trained eye to identify, well, is this really a mobility issue or a stability issue going on? Because remember, as you go into your downswing, you have to be able to decelerate. So you accelerate and then you decelerate, just like I was talking about that X-factor stretch, right? Our hips have to stop at some point so that our upper body can start rotating. And then the upper body stops so that the arms can start to go. Right? So if we don't have that deceleration and that control of our body as well as the mobility, then we're, we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to get the sequence down. So, again, it takes a trained eye to recognize whether it's mobility or stability issue. And so hip mobility and thoracic mobility are, are two of the, the biggest ones. Um, and for uh, sake of the transition, we'll talk about the hip mobility. Again, you have to be able to bring the hips around first get that good X-factor stretch, generate a lot of power, and then they have to stop so that the, the upper body can start to move. All right, so we have to rotate around a stable, stable left side of our body. So either there's some stability issue going on on the left side in the glutes and the obliques and the core, or um, there's some uh, poor hip range mobility going on, and that's really going to um, it, just prevent our, our sequencing to be correct overall. So, um, and then a lot of times with that, you will see an over-the-top swing fall. Um, so when, when people aren't sequencing correctly, that's usually what you will see. So, uh, Angel, let me ask you then just to, to sort of follow up a little bit on that. What are some of the common issues that, that um, and, and if you want to use um, some examples, for instance, you know, uh, younger golfers versus older golfers, as an example, some of the issues um, whether it be mobility, uh, what have you, that they may be experiencing that are going to cause that sequencing to sort of get out of sequence, if you will. So talk just a little bit. I know you've mentioned some, but just talk about some of the other issues um, that they may uh, be facing with. Uh, some may not necessarily be uh, permanent. There could be solutions to improve, like stretching and things like that, as an example. And others obviously may require uh, further attention. But just give us maybe a couple of examples, if you wouldn't mind. So are you saying, like, phys physicality-wise, like, um, in yes. give me a little bit more what you want? Yes, exactly, from a physical standpoint. So, for instance, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, some of our older golfers that might have uh, restrictions in their hips or uh, maybe back issues and things like that, obviously, mm -hmm. um, they're going to have a restricted backswing. So there's issues like that. Are there things that golfers can do to help open up some of that mobility and flexibility to allow them – to have a more fluid uh, transition is, yeah. I guess, what I'm looking for. Okay, give us an example. Absolutely. So, like I was saying, um, and correct me if I'm wrong for, uh, with the answer to this question, but so you're saying, like, hip mobility is, is one big thing. We have to have internal rotation around our left hip. If we're not getting that, that internal rotation, then we're not going to be able to rotate around a stable base. So what do we need to do? We need to increase our hip mobility, right? So... Examples of that, I mean, I could, I could explain it um, on the call, but I can also throw up a couple uh, hip mobility videos on your Facebook page to share out. Um, 
But basically, you want to do anything. You want to mobilize your hip into anything that is creating an internal type of rotation. So if you're sitting in a chair and you turn your knee in towards you, that's internal rotation. Your foot goes out, your knee goes in. All right? So we need to have proper internal rotation on the downswing. Um, am I getting at your question correctly? You certainly are. Yep. Okay. Perfect. So, um, what yeah. about all and then, sorry, go, sorry, I go wanna, ahead. I want to point I want to point out balance is huge. So if we're not if we don't have the balance to kind of be on our our lead leg for a, a quick minute, just we have to put all our weight with the weight shift, right? So during the downswing, there's not only, you know, the sequencing going on, but there's weight shifting, there's balancing, there's stabilizing. If we have an injury, say uh, someone has a total knee replacement on the left side, they're a right-handed golfer, they're going to subconsciously guard their left side and not want to shift their weight during the downswing. So that's going to screw them up, and then the follow-through is going to also be messed up. So there's so many considerations um, for, for every golfer when it goes into what they need exactly and taking a trained eye to identify what it is that exactly um, what and why um, needs to be um, trained and conditioned properly and corrected. Right. Let me ask you one more uh, quick follow-up question, then, John, I'm going to come back to you. Um, and, Angel, this talks about now, and, and, again, let's shift it to maybe even younger golfers uh, could be affected with this, um, but could, as an example, uh, lack of um, stretching, in other words, tightness in, in the muscles and so forth, that certainly would affect uh, their mobility and obviously in making a, a successful transition from backswing to downswing if they're working with tight muscles and that. So obviously would that then indicate that they need to make sure that they stretch properly before they're playing golf and not just before golf but even when they finish so that their muscles are warmed up and ready to play and not tense and, and they're tightening up so that they're not able to make uh, the, the golf swing transitions uh, effectively. Is that another area that oh, uh, most golfers need to work on? Absolutely. Um, but I do want to say that, okay, so basically this is, my, this is how my comparison of a cold muscle going into activity. You put a rubber band in the freezer, you pull it out, and you stretch it, what's it going to do? Break, rip, right? So that's right. kind of like your muscles when you are going into activity you know, golf, basketball, any kind of activity, any sport, if you're not warmed up properly, you have the potential risk for injury. And it's not only about stretching beforehand. <clears throat> stretching, yes, is great, but we must, and research shows this, we must stretch, warm up, whatever you want to call it, in a dynamic fashion. So what that means is if I'm going to do a hamstring stretch, I'm not going to hold it for 30 seconds a minute. It's not going to be a prolonged thing. It's going to be I'm standing up, I'm kicking my leg out, and I'm rotating my opposite arm to my opposite toe, right? And I'm coming back and I'm just keep alternating, alternating toe touches, things like that. That's an example of some type of dynamic warm-up that will get the hamstrings to lengthen because when we stretch, research has shown that it's not a temporary lengthening of the muscle or temporary, or, or I'm sorry, it's not a permanent lengthening of the muscle or a permanent change. It's a temporary one. So a lot of times if someone has tight muscles, they need to self-release through foam rolling, um, through any kind of massage type of technique that's going to activate and set, set off these receptors in the skin, in the muscle, in the fascia to do certain things that they need within their range. So if I have high tone in my muscles, and high tone just means they're really tense, they're really tight, they're kind of 
bulky, right? So they're not bulky for a good reason. I need to calm down that tone before I can do anything because that tone is ultimately going to um, control my mobility and my ability to stabilize and control my range of motion. Very good. And, and, you know, the reason I wanted you to, to sort of expand a little bit on that is, you know, a lot of golfers, you know, I think underestimate the importance of, of getting those muscles prepared. Um, you know, they just sort of get it in the car and they drive to the golf course. They might go out and hit a couple of balls, but they don't really do very much of a warm-up or preparation, if you will. Uh, and, you know, even if they don't have uh, any specific injuries or things that they're dealing with, um, certainly at present, uh, this is going to help them. Uh, avoid some of those injuries if they're properly prepared. And ultimately, you know, John, as, as you've mentioned many times on the show, is once they're properly prepared and ready to get out there and play, um, they're likely going to have a more successful round as opposed to just getting out of the car and, and going to the first tee without doing, uh, you know, some sort of proper warm-up or preparation. Because, uh, you know, as we know, the body, when it's sitting dormant for a long period of time and it's not moving, uh, you know, muscles get cooled and, and tighten up and, and don't have the same flexibility um, as, as what we might need. Um, John, I want to talk about the, the timing aspect of uh, your transition or downswing, if you will. Uh, that is obviously something as important as well. Let's talk about that. The um, the timing of of the golf swing. Um, one of the things that you've you've heard me say this many times on your show. Ted is the time it takes the club to go back into the ball is one second. And that does not count the follow through. That is the time the club goes from the address position to the backswing transition and actually is making impact. And, and so that's not a lot of time. That's why I'm a big believer in drills. Uh, obviously the only thing that I really focus on thinking wise in in golf is is my setup and my target and things like that. But once I'm going to swing the club, I want to do it with a proper rhythm and proper timing. And that's why if you look at really good players, Nicholas was famous for this, they'll waggle, they'll look at their target. Jordan Spieth will look at his target 15, 18 times before he ever pulls the trigger. They're not standing over the ball in a static position because it's very difficult to get the club moving if you're in a static position, in one second back into the ball. So so there needs to be some movement. So I have some drills where I'll have them, I uh, call them the stagger drills, and I'll have them shift their weight back and forth to hit the ball. I want them moving before they swing the club. Um, but it's very important uh, when you look at that one second is you're, you want your downswing to be twice as fast as, as your backswing. So what I really focus on is I do it in the count of ready, one, two, swing, swing. That's the rhythm. And I'm constantly saying that through the lesson. And then I have them do the drills. And, and what I notice is, is some people are, some people will walk in the door and, and I've had this happen. They're beginners and, and, and they can immediately get the timing. So they're probably pretty good dancers. They probably have pretty good rhythm. Uh, some people are faster and some people are slower. You can usually tell by the way they walk, by the way they talk, the way they think. Uh, doctors tend to be slower. Doctors tend to analyze. So I'm always trying to get the thoughts out of their head. So I'm always doing the metronome. I'm always using a metronome. I'm always using the count and I'm always using the drills. And then I look at their swing and this is what all the listeners can do. Everyone has a cell phone, film your swing and look at the length of your swing. 
if you have a really short swing, if you if you can't get the club back to parallel, that means your transition is most likely too quick. You're bringing the club down too soon. If your if your swing is too long, then your transition is too slow. So anytime I look at someone who has an overswing, uh, which is was when I first uh, learned this back years ago, that was my fault. I had a slow transition. Um, you know, so I would, I had to speed up my transition. Um, and then when I got my, then sometimes I would overdo it, you know, in, in tournaments, I might get too quick. So then I had to slow it back down. So it's something that you constantly have to monitor. That's why tour players hit balls every day. They already have great golf swings. They're trying to keep the timing of their transition consistent every single day. So they're hitting it one after another, they're doing it the proper time and they're doing it in the proper sequence. And so if you can have the proper timing and sequence in your golf swing, you're going to, you're going to hit a lot of really quality shots on the golf course. So, you know, transition has to do with the length of the swing. One of the things that um, Angel was talking about in warming up, the best device that I've seen out there is called the orange whip. And I think, and I, I'm not an, uh, I've sold a, a lot of those orange whips. I'm not sponsored by an orange whip, but that swing device is perfect uh, for warming up. But also, if you have a quick uh, downswing, if you bring the club down too quickly, uh, it allows you to, to get the club back there, and it keeps you back there. So it keeps your upper body back there, like Angel was talking about, creating the X factor, the separation of the upper body and the lower body. Excellent, excellent way to, to warm up. It's an excellent way to develop a natural transition without even thinking about it, and I would highly uh, recommend it uh, you know, to all the listeners out there. So, so timing is important, and, uh, if, in, and it's something that I look at with every student and something I work on with every student. And, and if, you can, if you can put that metronome, that count, into your, into your practice routine, you're definitely going to improve. Right. And let me just add to that, John, and, and, and get you to, to follow up a little bit with this. Uh, you know, uh, you're, you're exactly right in your analogy. I mean, the timing is, is very, very important, but it's also important to point out that um, that everybody's rhythm is different. To give you uh, case examples, you know, from an Ernie Els and a Freddie Couples to maybe somebody like a Nick Price, uh, as an example, and some of the others that had a little uh, quicker transitions. Um, I think one of the things that people have to find their own natural body rhythm and timing and not try to copy somebody else's. Uh, would you agree with that? What, what I try to do is I try to get people in, in the middle. Um, and so you're exactly right. When, when we did the research, when I was at Grand Cypress, all of this information, uh, Dr. Ralph Mann, who's a, who uh, is a, was a silver medalist in the 1972 Olympics, he teaches the tra U.S. Track and Field Association. He teaches all of those, the track stars currently. And Angel and I are going to have him on the show. He's one of our definitely our guests that we want to try to get on the show. But he filmed the top. Um, at the time, 54 tour players in the world. He filmed Nicholas, he filmed Kite, Greg Norman, all the great players. And and he said, what we look for is we want to try to get the middle ground. We don't want to take – there are definitely going to be some guys who who have longer, slower swings, and there's going to be guys who have quicker swings. Um, but I, fi I find if you can find the middle ground – so if I get someone that's too quick, I'm going to try to do things to slow them down a little bit. And I realize – I can't change the way God made them, but I can say right. that this is you're you're on the extreme of going, you know, if, because you know what happens if, if I always say if you have a quick golf swing on the driving range, 
when you get under pressure, it's only going to get faster and quicker. So we got to make sure that we have ways. That's, you know, Bob Sowards. I mean, Bob, I started working with him in 2008, you know, he, uh, when he was on the PGA Tour. And that's what he, he has a very quick transition. And I told him from day one, you need to start swinging the orange whip. And he's finally gotten that, and he's finally using it. And <laughs> it's it's made a big difference. Uh, he, he fought it at first. He was resistant um, because he was trying to – he would want to try to fix it on the video camera. And I say, the video camera is great. You know, we can I can film your swing, and we can get a few swings back there where we want it. But ultimately, you got to be able to do this on the golf course. You got to be able to do this under pressure. So you have to have the feel of that club. It, it's going to feel like it's back there longer than it needs to be back there. So, and then if I get someone who has a, a too too slow of a transition, I do the opposite. I don't give them the orange whip. I give them the impact bag. So I have the impact bag out there, and I try to get them to really pop it, like one two one two. I try to speed up their transition. So it's very much like a music teacher. He's got, they've got the choir. There's always someone that's a little slow, and they're trying to speed them up. There's always someone a little faster trying to calm them down. And when I work with students, you know, I've got it in tune in my head of where their timing needs to be. I'm always focusing on that. So if I can get that, and for the average golfer, if they can get anywhere close to a tour player, they're going to play great golf. Right. Um, before I move uh back to Angel for uh, her final question. I want to ask you one more thing about the transition. Um, what sure. typically uh, do the average golfer, uh, especially our ha high handicappers, what area of the transition or downswing do most of them have uh, or struggle the most with uh, or consistently do you feel based on some of the sequencing and things like that? Where do they seem to have that? Where's the disconnect happening, do you think? It, it, it's a chain reaction. It all goes back to the grip. Very, I've always said I've never seen a bad golf swing with a great grip. Every time I see bad golf swings, it starts with a grip. And so what happens is they have a weak grip, and that forces them to use their upper body. And then, like Angel says, a lot of a lot of the students I work with, they don't have the they don't they don't work out. They don't do the things that are that are necessary to create a dynamic motion. And and so I think that um, that's where the over-the-top comes from because the open club face uh, starts with the poor grip. They start using their shoulders to, because they, don't, they haven't created enough uh, turn. They haven't created enough of the X factor like she was talking about. And then once you don't have that, now you've got to start using your shoulders. They release their arms and shoulders too fast, which causes the club to come over the top. And what the overtop for, you know, for the listeners out there, if you don't know what over the top means is, is if you make a divot and your divot is going, if you're a right-handed golfer is going well left of your target, that means your swing path is coming over the top. And this is going to produce usually a slice or if they do have a good grip, sometimes I get students who have good grips. They just don't have the flexibility to do what I want them to do. They're going to come over the top and come in steep. Um, that'll produce a pull if they do that. But but it starts with, you know, getting the grip and then like the, the exercises that Angel, because there's so many things, so many times I've given a lesson and I say, this person can't physically do what I want them to be able to do. So it's, 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 it's a frustrating, and that's when I say, that's when I say, hey, you need to go see Angel. This is who you need to, you, this, you're going to get more benefit out of going to her in the short term uh, for us to get this, you know, n not counting the long-term effects of 
of working out, but in the short term of the lessons, if you can start getting your, you know, a little more turn, get a little bit more upper body behind the ball, then that's going to help with the, with the over the top that we, we see as instructors on a daily basis. Right. Well said. And, and thank you for that. And, and this goes to uh, Angel, to your point, you know, that you, that you talk about is, um, you know, obviously we want to, give them as much information as we can on the lesson tee, but if there are issues that are not typically, um, you know, as an example, whether it be a bad grip, as, as John's pointed out, or, or other things of that nature, um, typically it's going to be something that's going to fall into one of the categories that you've talked about over uh, the last several months. Um, that need to be looked at, and so it may not always be something that John or I can can fix on the on the practice tee, if you will, or on the golf course. It's something that may need to be looked at in your realm, if you will, first, and and deal with those issues before uh, you know we can then take a handle on it. Uh, I want to move on to uh, your final uh, point here tonight, uh, Angel, and that is, you know, all all golfers, uh, we all want to improve our, our ball striking, and and certainly we want to build power. Uh, you've got to talk about some strategies, uh, training and loading strategies that are going to help uh, our golfers out there achieve that. Right. So again, we, we rotate and we, we build this power and this uh, transition in, into our downswing through acceleration and deceleration, right? So when I say acceleration, our hips have to accelerate first, then they have to decelerate. So decelerate and stabilization or stability go hand in hand. So in order for us to promote that kind of stability, a lot of our nervous system has to kick in for this, and we have to load in a certain um, muscle length. Our muscles have to be, again, lengthened or on stretch to create that stabilization, that control, that deceleration um, power. So in order to get that speed and that power, you have to have the stability and the joint that's leading for the next one to go and to create that power. It's a transfer of energy through the body. So my hips have to decelerate. So my upper body, my torso can start to accelerate, right? So think about acceleration mm -hmm. as a shortening of the muscle. So when I go to do a bicep curl, right, my bicep bulge up, you know, um, I have a weight in my, in my hand, my bicep bulges up and I'm working it. So that's concentric. That's when your muscle shortens, and that's an acceleration type of strength or power um, type of building. Then the deceleration is as I come out of that bicep curl, my, my bicep starts to lengthen or become stretched, and I still have a load, an external force or resistance in my hand through the weight. So I really have to control my arm lowering back down because if I don't have that control, what's going to happen? My arm's just going to fall, right? Gravity is going to take over. Mm -hmm. And uh, my arm is going to rip out of the socket. So basically, <laughs> same thing. And I want to point out that you, you say, you know, on the, on the field, you, you can identify things, fix some things with drills, but sometimes there's some things that you just can't. Again, that's nervous system. We have to train repetitively over and over. Practice makes perfect. That's where that term comes from. Because our brain needs to build up these neuroplastic receptors, this neuroplasticity, so that it now becomes a second nature type thing and our body just kicks into motion, kicks into gear. So you have to be able to identify, again, where is the body not getting this control or this concentric or eccentric type contraction for us to um, execute the downswing and the transition appropriately. 
So a lot of times the hamstrings, right, and the muscles around our shoulder blades are the ones that are really, really important for creating this deceleration and the stabilization um, in the downswing. So you really want to look there if you're, your sequencing is off, um, you know, you're not able to kind of stop and go, stop and go with the kinematic sequencing correctly, then you want to look at those places um, for their eccentric control. And then again, you want to look, so, and then there's, I mean, there's so many things I could talk about this all day. As you go into the backswing, there's certain um, parts of your body right to left that again are um, responsible for controlling and stabilizing and the other part for uh, mobility and other parts for concentric and shortening contractions. So it's very confusing and you have to know where in the range it's happening, where in the swing it's happening and what muscles to look at and to identify, okay, this is the problem. They're not getting any control from this muscle and that's what's causing them to, um, to, to slide, to sway, to slide, whatever the case may be um, and, and execute these swing faults because of that said muscle is doing or not doing that said thing that needs to be done at that said point in time. Again, timing and um, sequencing are huge. So that is um, a mouthful, and I'm sorry if that confused you, <laughs> but that's just the, the nature of the beast. Um, shortening and lengthening, shortening and lengthening. So think about that when it comes to accelerating and decelerating. And, um, again, hamstrings and scapular or shoulder blade muscles during the downswing are really, really key in the deceleration. Well said. Um, you, you know, I think for – for most of our golfers out there, one of the things I think that we really need to emphasize is there's a lot more to playing good golf than just the equipment and, you know, heading out to the golf course. There's a lot of factors that, that play into um, becoming a, a good golfer. And, you know, it's not just um, out on the practice tee, but it's the preparation that we do in our everyday life. For instance, John, as you pointed out, um, you know, working out. And that doesn't mean we have to get into some, uh, you know, over, uh, you know, inc incredibly strenuous uh, workout routine. There's a lot of things that can be done um, that can benefit you as a golfer. And that's where you want to get with somebody that is a, a certified fitness, uh, particularly a golf fitness instructor uh, that can help through uh, some of those areas, some of the best things to work out. Just going to the gym and lifting weights uh, is certainly uh, can be helpful, but it can also uh, be a hindrance as well. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into, and I think it's important that people understand this because, you know, John, as you know, and, and I know in the industry, and, and Angel, I know as you experience talking to many of your clients that you're working with that obviously uh, play golf, that there's a lot of frustration by many players out there, and especially as, as they, you know, uh, get older and, and whatnot. And a lot of times, they're looking, John, for those quick fixes out in the golf course. Well, you know, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. When in actual fact, as you suggested earlier, you know, going to see somebody uh, like, uh, like Angel, who specializes in uh, physical therapy and, and wellness, can maybe address some of the real issues that they may be faced with. So I think it's important. And Angel, I, I just want you very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, as we get closer to our, our end time here, is to talk about the importance of screening uh, and, and what people should be doing, particularly um, throughout the year, but most importantly when they're getting ready, if they've been, you know, as some golfers do in the winter months here up north, uh, you know, kind of hibernate, don't get out there. What are some things that, that you would recommend they do when they come and see you 
what are you going to do to sort of uh, look at some of these issues that they may be faced with and give them a proper screening uh, as they get ready to start their new season? Yeah, so it's so important to be screened for your sport. So in this case, we're talking golf. A golf-specific functional movement screen is essentially what you're going to be taken through um, if you go to somebody that knows the appropriate um, movement to identify and assess. Um, so that's what I do. I take my, my patients through um, a multi-level you know, level screening from balance, mobility, stability, strength, power, all the physical um, pillars or components that you need in the golf swing. So if I'm starting out and I see somebody, um, you know, we're going to assess hip mobility, we're going to assess thoracic mobility. If I see somebody is lacking that, again, I have to dive in deep and find out why. Okay, I've identified it, but why is that happening? Is it a mobility problem, a stability problem, a nervous system kind of like balance or visual problem? Do they not have the um, right proprioception so their balance and weight shift is now off because of the surface change that they're on with the grass and the turf? All those things come into play, and you have to be skilled and tra highly skilled and trained to identify these things because not just one person or, or, or one population has the same type of issues. Every single person, person is different. They may present similar, but they're very different. So if I have an amateur golfer coming to me and they're saying, you know, I'm just, you know, slicing the ball, that's going to key me into he's going over the top. Why is he going over the top? And then we're going to get into that. If I don't find anything that correlates to what he's saying he's doing, then we have to go even deeper. But if you listen to your patients, they will tell you what's wrong with them most times. If they will give you a full history, and they will tell you the exact problem, and then that makes your life easier. It's always, it's always the case. I mean, not always. I take that back. But most times, commonly the case. So, guys, get out there. Find a person who specializes in golf rehab, fitness performance, and, and go get assessed. I know that money and finance is an issue and it's a burden and an objection for everybody. And I get that. I understand that. But so is when your body hurts and you miss work and you can't play anymore and all these things start to just snowball into a disaster. So prevent it before it gets to be a problem. And not only that, you're going to play better, faster, stronger, more efficient, and you're going to prevent your injuries from happening because it's going to happen. Like I've said many times on the show, it's not, if it happens, it's when it happens. So right. Please do well, yourself do yourself a favor and stay away from the injury, the pain, all this struggle that you can totally, totally prevent um, just by getting screened. Well said. And you know, John, just <clears throat> excuse me, just to sort of quickly wrap up. Um, you know, it, it's it's important, I think, to do that for a number of reasons. Obviously, to isolate any potential issues in the body that could be preventing somebody from playing their best golf. But we also, as coaches and instructors, we kind of do our own screening uh, to assess uh, an individual's mobility and what their, uh, um, you know, what their area is that they struggle with most. And even though we don't have the same expertise as, say, somebody in uh, Angelica's field, um, we can help identify uh, by doing our own screenings, if you will, uh, out on the golf course or out in the practice tee to isolate whether this is an actual um, 
fundamental problem that they're having in their golf game, whether it be a poor grip or so forth, or whether there are maybe more physical issues. And obviously, if we identify that, hey, we believe there's some physical issues here, then that's when we want to direct them to uh, someone like Angelica, correct? That is correct. Like I've said many times, I'm I'm uh, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on Facebook, so I don't have the uh, all the expertise uh, that that Angel has when it comes to to the human body. But but I do, you know, for me as an instructor, um, you know, I, I can look and I can see a golf swing, but but one of the things that really tells me a lot is when they finish hitting their shot is can they hold their finish? Can they hold their balance? And, um, and, and there's a, there's some tests that I'll do with them, um, that, that I learned from some, some TPI stuff with balance that I'll do with them. Uh, I'll simply have them, you know, lift one leg up and hold their balance and see how long they can hold on each leg and things like that. Um, but, but balance is so critical in the golf swing. And, and if you can't hold your finish, if you're one of those players who every time you hit a shot, you lose your balance then there's something wrong uh, in your swing and, and there may be something wrong, you know, physically as well. So that's, that's an easy way for the listeners out there to, um, you know, when they're playing golf to, to realize if they're, if they're doing something wrong in the swing, the, the ball will, the ball will never lie to you. The ball will always tell you what you're doing and your body will not lie to you. Your body will tell you if you're off balance, it'll tell you, you know, there's something wrong in your swing. Yeah, and, and obviously when we do our assessments, we can very easily identify whether there's issues in the golf swing itself um, that are, as I mentioned, you know, as an example, whether it be a poor grip or a timing issue and things, and it may not necessarily always be uh, relatable to uh, a physical issue or a mobility issue. It could be just a poor sequencing or poor timing. So those are things that we can help them work on, but we want to make sure that they've had a, a full spectrum, if you will, of of assessments done uh, both by their local golf professional and obviously at, uh, by their uh, physical uh, therapist and, and uh, individual that specializes uh, in this particular uh, area of expertise. So, um, guys, as always, uh, a great show, and thank you very much, as always, for, for coming on and, and sharing some insight to uh, this next phase, if you will, and the transition and the uh, timing sequence of the golf swing. And we're going to actually uh, for the listeners, uh, if you've missed the, the previous uh, two, if you go back in the archives, if you go to blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash golf talk live, uh, if you go back last month and the previous month, uh, you can go back and listen to the uh, earlier episodes that both um, John and, and Angel have come through. We talked about, as mentioned earlier, uh, we talked about the setup and obviously the backswing. Uh, so if you've missed those two, go back in the archive session, uh, section excuse me, and listen to those and uh, that'll sort of get you caught back up, and then you can re-listen to this one here, and it'll probably make a little bit more sense for you. Um, they're going to be coming back, of course, next month, uh, I believe on my last show, December 19th, uh, to finish out uh, with the next segment uh, before we break uh, for the end of the year. So I'm looking forward to having you guys come back. But very quickly, uh, John and Angel, uh, if you want to let the folks know, John first and then Angel, uh, if you want to let the folks know how the best way to reach out to either one of you, uh, and then maybe uh, give us an update, uh, obviously, as to where, uh, for those folks that would like to tune into your podcast, uh, Golf Swing RX Podcast, the prescription for your game, uh, how they can go about doing that. John, go ahead. Well, Ted, first of all, thank you again for having us on the show. And, Angel, I've, I've enjoyed it. You did a great job tonight. 
Um, our, our podcast, Golf Swing RX Podcast, the prescription for your game can be heard really anywhere you download your podcast. You can you can go on in there and download it. And we'd love to love to have you uh, listen to that. And, and we've got some great shows planned for uh, the the end of this year and the rest of and and starting into next year. Um, if my I'm an instructor with GolfSwing.com. If you go to GolfSwing.com forward slash John Decker, and again I spell my first name J O N. Uh, forward slash John Decker. I have over 300 videos on that website. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can go under John Decker Golf Instruction. Again, those videos, uh, the tap and go and the transition drills are all there on YouTube. Uh, and I am the um, author of uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. It's a Christian book that combines uh, Christianity and golf, um, and and some got a lot of stories from my life there. It's available on uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble websites, and I do have a Bible study with that. So if you're interested in me uh, coming and doing any public speaking, golf instruction, Bible study at your facility, um, I can travel to your facility and uh, set that up. If you want to reach out to me on social media, uh, I'd love to do that. But thanks again, Ted. Uh, always a pleasure, John, and I know you'll be back. Uh, with Angel not only next month to uh, sort of wrap up uh, with uh, the next episode, but uh, I know you'll be back on Coach's Corner as well uh, one more time before the season ends, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, Angel, the best way for folks if they want to reach out to you, maybe if they're interested in, in uh, you know, having an assessment done or if they have some issues that maybe they need to address in order to be able to go out and play their best golf, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, so I am uh, on Instagram and Facebook, no Twitter, none of that stuff, and keep it simple. So you can find me. Um, you can use the social media handle at Optimal PT and A-N-D Wellness for Instagram, and I believe the same for Facebook. Um, it might be Optimal Physical Therapy and Wellness. You can also find my personal account on uh, Facebook by just typing in my name, Angelica Napolitano. Um, and if you are in the area and you would like to have a screening you can just contact me there um follow me on my instagram account and it shows all my information same thing with my facebook business page um and yeah i can also do virtual screenings so if you are in california or you're in idaho i can also do a screening from my phone from my computer anything that has a webcam um, i can assess you right then and there and we can come up with an awesome plan for you to correct your um, your physical limitations or impairments. Perfect. Well done, guys. Uh, once again, thank you, John and Angel, for, for joining me uh, here on Golf Talk Live and sharing uh, some valuable information with uh, my audience. I want to wish you both a very happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have uh, an enjoyable time with, with your family and friends uh, over this special holiday coming up uh, next week. And I look forward to both of you uh, not only joining me uh, again next month for as I said, another episode, but I, I'm really excited and looking forward to having you uh, both be a part of the iGolf Sports Network uh, coming in the spring of 2020. So have a great holiday, guys. Thank you very, very much, and keep up the great work, and uh, I will talk to both of you soon. Thanks. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thank All you, right. Ted. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. Bye-bye, guys. All right, that was uh, John Decker and uh, Dr. Angelica Napolitano joining me here uh, on Golf Talk Live, talking about uh, the transition of the golf swing and uh, uh, and also uh, some of the uh, kinematic sequencing of the downswing and some of the other areas as well. 
um, in this segment here. And don't forget, as I mentioned, go to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live uh, and scroll down to the on demand section. And you can go back and listen to some of the previously uh, aired episodes and you can find the one in the uh, one last month and the one for the previous month. Uh, that they uh, were on the show. You'll be able to see them very uh, easily there. So if you missed the first two uh, opportunities, by all means, go back and listen to them there uh, and uh, or anywhere that uh, all good co- uh, podcasts are located. You can download them and you'll hear that uh, in the closing uh, uh, credits here in just a moment. Um, but once again, I want to thank everybody for joining me tonight here on Golf Talk Live. I'm really uh, excited to do the show and I'm looking forward to uh, what will be actually season eight in 2020. It's hard to believe we've I've been doing this for this long, but uh, it'll be season eight for uh, Golf Talk Live and season seven for the Women of Golf Show. And just to remind everybody, uh, next week uh, for the week of Thanksgiving, uh, either show will not air uh, as I'll be taking a break uh, and uh, enjoying uh, family and friends uh, during this uh, uh, holiday season. Uh, And then I will be returning uh, on uh, December 3rd and 5th uh, for the Women of Golf and Golf Talk Live respectively. Uh, for three more shows each, and then we'll be closing off for the 2019 season and then starting up again uh, for the Women of Golf on February 4th and Golf Talk Live on February 6th in 2020. And I will announce before uh, the season ends this year a little bit more update and uh, more detail. Uh, I know I've not uh, uh, outlaid a lot of information about the iGolf Sports Network as of yet. I'm trying to finalize a few things here first before I make the official announcement, but I will keep you posted. I think you're going to really like the uh, new platform. Uh, Of course, I'll be continuing with these two broadcasts as well, but the iGolf Sports Network is something special I've been working on for quite some time, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So I hope you'll uh, follow through and enjoy me uh, on that platform as well. On behalf of... uh, all of the uh, gang that have been on the show tonight, uh, the guys in the coach's corner, Peter Xarian, uh, Chuck uh, Evans, and Clint Wright, and uh, John Decker, and Dr. Angelica Napolitano, and all of the uh, folks that uh, participate here on Golf Talk Live, we want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Have a safe holiday. God bless, and I'll see you in two weeks' time here on Golf Talk Live.